Over the course of the last year or so, um, I was taking Nigel to this martial arts class. And when they would get the kids to stretch at the beginning of the class, they would say, okay, kids, find first position. Does everybody know what first position is? And the kids would say, yes. And they'd say, what is it? While they're stretching. And they would say, zero tension. Now, the first position, is, it's this position of zero tension, and, uh, which is you know, self-explanatory. You don't feel anything yet in the stretch. And so all the kids would kind of go down and get into zero, whatever for them was zero tension. And there's this one little guy every time that would just plop down and go bloop, and do the full splits. And they would be like, you know, easy there, Jackie Chan, like zero tension. And he'd be like, oh, I don't feel anything. I'm completely fine. And uh, wow, incredible. The, when you're made out of rubber and magic, the things you're able to do. But uh, that wasn't zero tension for everybody else. That was tr- incredible. And... Uh, when we approach the scriptures and we talk about Christian growth and maturity and spiritual maturity and we think about growing as believers, sometimes we get this idea, at least I've had it many times in my uh, life as a believer, that, I should, that, that when you mature spiritually, um, you kind of live life at zero tension, kind of a zero tension with your sin. You're just like, oh, man, I used to have all these struggles and things, but boy, I've just really grown, and poof, I'm just living at zero tension. Our text today is Romans chapter 7. And if you're familiar with Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7 reads like a tell-all chapter by the Apostle Paul, who is a tremendously mature believer, who preaches the cross, believes in the resurrection, believes in the grace of Christ, as much as anyone, perhaps arguably more than anyone, I mean, this is a guy who is a mature believer, and he is absolutely not, in Romans chapter 7, conveying a mature life of a believer looking like living at zero tension. In fact, while he is fully convinced and enjoying the great rest and the fact that God's grace has removed sin's hold on him, his experience is that he's actively fighting against sin that's trying to wage war inside him. So Christian maturity doesn't look like becoming so spiritual that you relate to sin with zero tension. It looks like refusing to live with your sin, and that spiritual growth actually involves tension. So we're going to read the whole chapter this morning, and we're going to unpack this together. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on the person only as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. And accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you died. You died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us to bear the fruit of death. But now we're released from the law, having died to to what once held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. I wouldn't have even known what sin was if it were not for the law. 
For I would have not known what it was to covet if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The very commandment that was intended to bring life proved to bring death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me and through the commandment killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what was good, in order that sin might be shown to be a sin, and through the commandment of sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the very thing that I hate. And now if I do what I don't want to do, then I agree that the law is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, and that is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good thing that I want. I keep doing the evil that I don't want. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. So I find this law at work. Even though I want to do what's right, evil's right there with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against me in my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body that's subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my sinful nature serves the law of sin. This is God's word. Now, the first seven chapters, or six, six chapters, kind of leading up to this point, we see this huge civil war going on inside Paul. You know, Paul's really unpacking the problem of uh, us not wanting to glorify God. And as he unpacks it through Romans chapters 1 and 2 and 3, we realize that we turn to puny gods and we're created, you know, as created beings uh, to worship. And so we're not really choosing whether or not we worship. We're only choosing what we worship. And so at, if, if, if at the core of our identity... Um, our, our, our satisfaction is hinging on something that we've made a God, then everything gets distorted. And that's what's leading up to the, the point where he talks about the grace of Christ coming, Jesus being the second Adam, that we are now dead to sin. And you see that, that, that kind of unpacking in, in chapters in 5 and 6. But what Paul's kind of getting at leading up to verse 7, which is why he's saying that, yeah, I'm dead to sin, but I'm still waging war with my sin, is that before we wanted to glorify God, we were driven around by our lusts. And in the, Greek, in the Greek, lust is not simply sexual, though it includes that. But it's an inordinate desire. It's a pervasive, chronic desire to either obtain a little, a, a little God or hang on to a little God. And, and somehow, the reason why we're being uh, driven by this inordinate desire is because life, the way life is, something's either blocking it or threatening to take it away. So we're kind of constantly driven so by this lust. And so when we get to chapter 7 here, after Paul's been unpacking this problem, we've got a glory problem, we've got this ordinate kind of, we've got these uh, chronic uh, desires kind of driving our lives, and not even necessarily for bad things, which is the way most people think about Christian faith. 
uh, and sin as they think about bad things. For example, if you're here this morning and you're considering Christian faith and you're in a journey and you're, you're wondering about these things, maybe, maybe what you're thinking is, yeah, this is exactly what I think about Christian faith, is everybody's waking up every day and they're freaking out, like, don't do bad things, don't do bad things. You know, that's only really part of what kind of Bible talks about sin. I mean, of course we can do bad things, but actually much of what the Bible has to say about sin is, is actually loving good things in the wrong way taking good things and elevating them to be ultimate things and turning them into little mini-messiahs. So when we get here to chapter 7, Paul's already established that sin doesn't rule over him, but it is waging war inside him. And that's true for you and I. That's why we don't live life at zero tension. That's why we have to go to our friends and say, listen, you know, can you forgive me? I'm really sorry for that. That's why when we're at work, we've got to sit down with our colleagues at times and say, listen, I didn't handle that well. That's why we have with our spouses and our children. That's why the Christian life is a life of repentance is because we just don't live life at zero tension. We don't come to faith in Christ. And even though the scripture says we're dead to sin, not have any tension with our sin. So there's three um, things I want to unpack from this text this morning that I think Paul gives us that are really helpful. The first thing is, the exposing power of God's law. The second thing is relating to sin with a new identity. And the third thing is the expulsive power of a new affection. The first thing let's look at, the exposing power of God's law. When you look at verses 7 through 9, you see that the purpose of God's law is to divine sin for us and reveal the sin that's in us. And actually when God's law comes, when God's word comes, it actually aggravates and stirs up what's already in there. Actually in verse 9, Paul says, you know, his sin sprang to life. What's he talking about? He's saying, like, once, he see, once the, the command is there, don't do this, the law inflames the desire, and all of a sudden now you want to do it. It's the classic don't touch the wet paint thing. We do it all the time. You walk by, do not touch wet paint. Well, let me just see what oh, it is. Right? We do. The law inflames. It just does. And so Paul kind of gives us this. He actually says at one point in verse 9, you know, there was a time when I lived apart from God's law, and when he, when he says he's alive apart from the law, you know, you do your history and you realize Paul was raised as a, as a, as a devout Jewish boy and was eventually a, was a Pharisee. So there was never really a time when he was apart from God's law. But what he means by being alive apart from God's law until the commandment kills him is he's like on externals. He's like, oh, I'm alive. I'm checking all the boxes. And all of a sudden the 10th commandment shows up and says don't covet. And it comes out of the category of the externals. And it speaks to something that reveals to him the internals. And he recognizes that externally he can be a good, relatively good person. But internally he can only ever be a sinner. And the law killed him. So that when he says he's alive apart from the law, he's saying there have to actually only, you have to be ignorant of the law to actually think you're keeping it. And so... There's this exposing power in God's law. That's why he says when he gets to the 10th commandment of, of coveting, it killed him. You know, you can read through the 10 commandments. We've been going through them during our time of confession. And if you read them as externals, then you can quickly conclude, oh, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I haven't killed anybody. I didn't commit adultery this week. I think I'm fine. But the 10 commandments are not simply 10 external rules to be kept. They're actually 10 commands that, that, that comprehensively cover all of the motivation of the human heart. Which is why when Jesus says, you heard it said, don't murder, and I'm saying, if you hate your brother, it's the same thing. Because Jesus takes it out of the realm of the external and into the realm of the dark, unevangelized corners of our hearts and says, actually, wait a second, the law is exposing something here. So that's what Paul's getting at when he says that he's, he saw that with, with the coveting, coveting. You know, coveting is, and all of us do this at times, Coveting is an insatiable longing for more, that you ha- more than what you have. 
Right? You, can be, you can have an insatiable longing for more physical beauty or health or physical strength than, than you have, or more success than you have, or acceptance, or wealth, or material things. Or you can covet respect and accolades and letters after your name and having your peers and colleagues bask in the grandness of your wisdom. You can covet these things. And the reason we know that it's coveting is that coveting isn't simply wanting something. Coveting is, coveting is so, so chronic that even when you get it, you're still not satisfied. It's looking to something other than God, making it your functional God in the hopes that it's going to quench your thirsty soul as if it was God. And Paul saw that in himself, and he goes, it killed me. I can't keep, I can't, I can't keep the law. The law is exposing something that's here. And so when God's law exposes things to us, uh, it aggravates our sinful motives. This happens all the time. We know what the Bible says about gossip and backbiting, but gossip and backbiting is so fun. Right? No? Only me? Okay. See me after the service so I can cast those lying demons out of you. Because that's why we do it. That's why when church people do it, they, after they're done, they go, well, we, let's, let's pray for them. Because it's like, well, it's just, whew, there. We don't, at the end of it, we don't say, you know what, we should just repent for that 45 minutes of gossip we just did. We just do all of it. They go, we should really pray for them. Yeah, dear Lord, please help them. Whew, and then we got there, it's fine. No, you don't like that one? Okay, I'll move, I'll move on to another one. I'll make sure I offend everybody before the service is over. You know, the, the scriptures talk about um, adultery. And some of us, praise God for his grace, have literally committed adultery. And praise God for his forgiving grace. But for many of us who have not committed adultery in a literal sense, in a spiritual heart sense, we're guilty of adultery. We're all guilty of adultery. We have... We have longed after other, other things and people and exalted them up above God. Some of us, even in terms of relationships, where you find that extra reason to go by the desk and talk to that person that you really have no reason to go by their desk, but you find reasons to do it, it's because God's law inflames. We know I shouldn't do this. I'm not going to physically act on this thing, but there's something in my heart that does it. Maybe you're a single person, and you're happily single, and you're like, you know what? I don't need all the noise of marriage. So I'm just going to be a single person. Jesus was single. Paul was single. I'm in good company. Except for this one little thing on sexual ethics where you're like, but I'd also still like to maybe have that and my life. So maybe I need to flex and say that the Bible says something it doesn't say. Or maybe you're a single person and you know that the scriptures say, I really should marry someone who shares my faith, who loves Jesus, so that the gospel can be preserved for generations. And that doesn't become a confusing hurdle for our children if I'm going to church because I love Jesus and my spouse is like, have a good time. And you know that the word of God says that, but it inflames. This is what law, God's law does. It, 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 it comes up and it exposes um, the darkness of our hearts. And so we get this provocative image, right? Paul says in verse 11 and 12, he says, you know, the problem wasn't the law. The problem was me. The law wasn't bad or broken. My humanity's bad or broken. And the law is exposing this. And then when you get to verse 13, he gives this provocative image where it's like, he says, the law is not the killer. Sin is the killer. God's good and loving and wise law was the murder weapon. That's the image. It's like that game of Clue. You know, who did it in the living room with a candlestick? It's, that's, what, that's what Paul's giving us here. Yeah, sin kills you. And guess what it uses to kill you? God's good and wise and loving, gracious law as the murder weapon. Because it goes, hey, look at that. 
do you want that? And your sin goes, no, and it kills me. And we react against it. That's the exposing power of God's law, which leads into verses 14 through 23, this civil war in Paul's heart. So the exposing power of God's law is, is such that it aggravates our sin. But let's move on now to how do we relate to sin with a new identity? See, this, this passage is not bad news. It's actually very good news. It's actually comforting news. The first cursory read, it seems terrible. It's like, this sounds defeatist. He's like, ah, oh, the things I want to do, I don't do. And, uh, sounds terrible. But let's unpack this. Yes, the exposing power of God's law, but notice how Paul is relating to it. He's relating to sin with a new identity. That's how we need to relate to it. Think of it, think of it this way. He's relating to it with protesting power. It keeps rising up in him, just like it rises up in you and I. But what's the first thing you do when somebody brings something to your attention that you did in the past and they want to bring it up and throw it in your face? What's the first thing that you do if that's ever happened to you? You're very, you very quickly protest and be like, whoa, that's not, I'm not that person anymore. Somebody comes up to you, they bring up this thing, this foolish thing you did, this embarrassing thing that you did, and, and you want to say, whoa, whoa, yeah, yeah, that was ridiculous, that was the old me, uh, that's not who I am anymore. The first thing we want to do is protest it, right? What do you do when somebody puts you in a box? They say, this is who you are, this is how you always react, this is how you're always going to be, they use these global statements. You pr- you, it's like it springs out of you, you protest, you're like, no. And what Paul is doing is he's protesting his sin, He's not just laying down and accepting it. When you look at verse 15, you notice that he hates it. He refuses to concede to it. He refuses to live with it. It's happening. It's, bad. it's a battle within him, but he's relating to it with a new identity. You remember last week, some of you were here. For those of you who weren't, I gave this example, this, this picture of, of just getting used to sin and living with it, like this washing machine that inexplicably ended up in our living room for an inordinate, ungodly amount of time. You know, the old washing machine died. It got moved up to the living room. My stepdad's back went out. He couldn't continue. It stayed there. I don't know how long it stayed there. It's embarrassing. I know it was long enough that we decorated the washing machine for Christmas. That's how long it was there. There was a little Christmas tree on it. There was some doilies involved. It was a terrible situation. And when you live with your sin, that's what it is. It's like, yeah, this should be here. This is a fixture in my life. I've just grown accustomed to it. But really what has to happen is you wake up one day and go, why is there a washing machine in the middle of my living room? Why, why is this sin in my heart and in my mind? And in my, why am I doing this? And you wake up to it and you relate to it, you protest it, and you kick it to the curb. And this is, what, this is the tone of how Paul is relating to his sin. Now that's a funny example, but I'm going to give you one that's not so funny. I struggle with anger, being defensive, and control. Only those three things, nothing else. But those, <laughs> those are the three that I feel like talking about this morning. I struggle with those things. They're all connected, weirdly. You know, when I go and talk to counselors about this in the past, they, they have a lot of insight about how those three things are connected. But it's a struggle, right? They, they, it springs up inside me. It's a constant struggle. I hate that I am... I'm angry. I hate that I can be controlling. I hate that I am so def- so quickly defensive. It's embarrassing. But I, that's a part of my old sin nature and a host of hurt and wounds and everything else that we've in there. But it causes me to do it. But here's the thing. I need to relate to that with a new identity. I can't just say to my wife and children, my dad was born outside of Naples. I'm going to yell. Get over it. 
My dad was a Sena, is a Sena. He told me that the city that he grew up in outside of it, it's the kind of place where the kids would translate from Italian into English just so they could curse at you. That's the kind of place it was. So I'm going to yell, just get over it. No, I can't just say, ah, oh, I've got hurt and pain in my past and I'm Italian and I'm going to be angry and I'm going to yell and my wife and children have to just deal with it. I have to relate to that with, this, with a new identity. And, and, and so my question is, what, what about you? What is the, what is the sin? What are, what are the things that chronically come up in your heart and in your mind that you've decorated like a ridiculous washing machine that shouldn't be there in the middle of your soul? You've d- decided that it's normal, and it's not. And by God's radical grace, you're already forgiven of it. And so, from that place of freedom... Now, how do you relate to it with a, with a new identity, as, as, as Paul did? You know, when, you look at, when you look at the text, he, 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 um, he gives us something else here. When you look at verse 20, there's a bold separation. He's like, he's like sin did it, not me. And that, that sounds a little bit like saying the devil didn't do it, and he's like not taking responsibility. That's not at all what's going on here. What he's doing is, this is not a, a green light to not take responsibility for our sin. This is a call to refuse to attach our identity to our sin. See, notice the huge separation in the text. Paul's like, that is not who I am now. I know that I do it. I know that I struggle with it. It isn't me. My true self rejoices in God's law. My old nature fights against God's law. And Paul is acknowledging his conflicting, divergent desires. But by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, he is very clear on who he is. And he is very clear on what he most wants. He's very clear through that whole thing. He's like, the thing I want to do. Do you catch all that language? So there's a struggle there. He's not living life at zero tension with his sin, but he's not just sitting in it and normalizing it. Like, yeah, this is actually who I am now. He's like, no, actually, that's not who I am. So I'll fight this to the grave if I have to. I will. I won't be defined by it. Jesus did not forgive me by his grace so that I could just wallow in this. He did not do it. And so... The idea that mature Christianity looks like living at zero tension. You know, that's self-righteous. Oh, I don't have any. Well, Paul, this is a really cute stories, but I don't have any sin I can think to repent of. I have no tensions in my life. You are asleep then. You're not living a sinless life. There's only one guy. His name's Jesus Christ. He lived that life. So it's self-righteous, but we can swing in the other ditch. And I'm not, by the way, when I say that, I'm not, I'm not calling for knuckle-dragging, you know, uh, leave, leave church every, every week feeling like you're a zit on the face of humanity. No, 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 no. There's a, there, this, this is a joyous life that we live in Christ. And this, this battle is real, but there is a pervasive sense of joy through it. So it's self-righteous to just think you can live at zero tension. But if you go in the other ditch from the self-righteous ditch, you end up in the lawless ditch, which is like, well... Actually, um, you know, I can just kind of stay in my sin because there's this thing called grace and I just keep spreading it on whenever I'm doing like peanut butter. I just live however I want and then God's going to forgive me because grace. That is such a weird concept of Christianity. It's, it's, it's just not Christian faith. You've invented something else. And so these are kind of two ditches that we can fall in because either way, they're, they're two sides of the same gospel erasing coin. Because the self-righteous person denies their need for Jesus as a savior, and the lawless person denies Jesus as the Lord. But we relate with a new identity, and we re- relate to all this in a repentant way. Because 
th- this is so beautiful. Uh, you'll see it in verse 24 and 25. What comes out of the heart of the person who knows they're saved by grace? There's two cries that come out of the heart. They're there in 24 and 25. The first cry is a cry of confession. The second cry is a cry of celebration. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Confession. Thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ our Lord right, has taken away all my sin. Celebration. So this is the Christian life. It's the cry of confession. It's the cry of celebration. Both are happening. There's joy in that. The struggle is real. The frustration is real with our sin. But it doesn't define us. And so if there's going to be real deep change in our lives, real change in our lives, then we can't just simply roll our sleeves up and try harder. Because spiritual renewal, see what we're getting from Paul here, if you read the first seven chapters of Romans, again, if you just read it through, what we're getting from Paul here is that spiritual renewal does not begin with willpower. It begins with worship. We don't have a willpower problem. We have a worship problem. Because from our worship flows all of the... See, I'll, I'll say it this way. I'll, I'll, take a, uh, I'll borrow from Martin Luther. You know, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And so there's no earning in anything that we do. Because Christ is enough. It's sufficient. It's done. It's finished. Period. Full stop. The end. And so now, from that place, the worship propels the willpower. Which leads us to the third thing which is the expulsive power of a new affection. If that sounds familiar to some of you theologians in here, it's because I stole it from Thomas Chalmers, who's a Scottish theologian in the 1800s who preached an incredible sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And so th- that, this is the answer to the question of how do we have the power, as, as Paul did, to not just live normalizing our sin. Well, Chalmers said this. He said, No one who's united to Christ sins out of duty. We sin because it's more pleasant or less painful than the way of righteousness. You see, back in chapter 6, Paul asked a question. Hey, if you've been saved by grace alone, apart from all of your works, should you stay in your sin? And now here in chapter 7, he's answering the the question. He's saying no. And how does he answer it? He answers it with, this is how the chapter started, he answers it with a marriage metaphor. Hey, should we just stay in our sin? No, let me paint a picture for you. Marriage. One of the spouses dies. Are they bound to the spouse now? No. Because death breaks the binding power of the law. And he says, guess what, church? A death happened that has broken the binding power of the law. It has broken the binding power of sin. You were married to your sin. You had full allegiance and full union. You were united with your old nature. But now Christ died, and you, through your baptism, you died with him too. And guess what that means? You're free to remarry. That's what what the metaphor is. It's a remarriage. It's a reunion. It's the power of a new union. It's, it's, It's the releasing of your affection to love another. It's the expulsive power of a new affection, Jesus Christ. I'll, 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 maybe I'll, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll explain it like, I want to give the kids an image of all this because I'm using big words here and I want the kids to to really grab how beautiful this is. See, he's, he's, uh, he's giving this picture of 
something displacing something else. So how many of you kids are, um, you've been to a pool and the water's very high, like, real, like right up, the pool is right up to the lip, very high. And uh, then someone's there, an adult, a big adult, and you're like, do a cannonball! And so that adult's like, yeah, I'll do a cannonball, because they see the kids are like, cannonball, cannonball! And, and that adult jumps on the diving board and goes, And it's like a scene out of Marine Land, right? And all the water gets displaced. Why did that happen? Because when, when something is full and something of tremendous substance comes in to something that's already full, it displaces what's already there. And the gospel comes into our life with such tremendous renewing, transforming force that it displaces our affections that were previously there. It is the love of Jesus and the worship of Jesus as we continually, not one and done, every Sunday, friends, every Sunday, renewal, coming into the gymnasium of the soul so that the gospel of God's grace can come in and displace the old affections. It is the expulsive power of that new affection that comes in and does this Incredible work, the joy, the wonder, the strength of our love for Jesus. It pushes against the old nature. Nature. It pushes the things out. And that's the tone that we get from Paul. That's the picture of the marriage metaphor. Because marriage is a, is a paradox, right? Many of us in here are married. It's a paradox. It's deep friendship, love, and intimacy and the loss of unilateral freedom at the same time. Right? Susan doesn't, Susan doesn't just... You know, go, oh, there's a sale on flights. And I hate the winter, so... And I come home, and I'm like, babe, where are you? And I text her, and she sends me a selfie from Cuba. <laughs> Hashtag Cuba life! She can't, she, does, she, doesn't do, she can't do that. She doesn't do that. Loss of unilateral freedom. If, I, if I'm going to go out and buy a loaf of bread, i got to be like, hey, I'm leaving to buy a loaf of bread. I'm a 44-year-old man, but I have no unilateral freedom. And I know that for the teenagers and the young people that didn't hear, like, oh, I'm never getting married. <laughs> this is a great commercial for marriage, right? Uh, see, the thing is, it, it looks ridiculous to you guys because there's a, there's a uh, joy of the unilateral freedom that you enjoy in your singleness, right? Which is a beautiful thing. For the adults who are here who are, uh, you know, fulfilled in Christ, happily single, uh, you enjoy it. You enjoy it, right? You are actually, as Paul said, you're free to minister. You can get up and, and, and serve in ways that the rest of us can't because you can just pick up and go, grab your car keys, and you're gone. And so, it, but, but for, I'll talk to the teenagers here, 12, 13-year-olds. It seems crazy. You can't just go out of your house and buy a loaf of bread without talking about it. You want to know something? It's, it's the love for your spouse that you, you don't even think about it. I never think about it until I'm making the joke about it now because I love Susan. So I don't think about Every time I have to check with her on, I shouldn't say have to check, I mean, every time I check with her on something, we sit down to go through our schedule, who's going to borrow the car, what's happening, where are you going to be, where am I going to be? I don't sit down and go, the loss of unilateral freedom in my life. Because my love for Susan has, that love, that, that, ha, that love has expulsive power. That love has, ex, the expulsive power of my new affection for Susan has expelled 
the, the, the love that I had for just being able to get up and do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. This is the picture that Paul gives. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the work of Christ and of his spirit in our life. This expulsive power of a new affection. That's why he gives the marriage metaphor. Susan was teaching children about, uh, you know, the union, union with Christ one time. And she did, she did a little skit at this camp. And there was a bride walking down the aisle towards the groom. And on the way towards the groom, the bride would look at all the, all, every single boy and make eye contact with him and go, nope, 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 nope. And her, and her point was, your yes is your no. You see, that one yes to the groom is a no to everything else. It's the expulsive power of the new affection. And so Chalmers said this. He said, this love never begins with a duty that one performs. It begins with a delight that one prefers. And so love is an affection before it's a commitment. It's our love and union with Christ that fosters our commitment, that feeds our commitment. So church, may the exposing power of God's law continually guide you. And may you fight against the sin of your old nature from the certainty of your new identity. And may the expulsive power of your new affection compel you to live to the glory of the one who saved you in grace. Amen.